let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy you would give us understanding of your word, conviction of its truth and a determination uh, both individually and as a congregation to put it into practice. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In uh, 2021, two of our elders, Sam John and Ben Collada, left to establish a new church at Donnybrook under Ben's leadership. A COVID-prevented session, that is the meeting of the elders, from seeking in 2021 to replace them with two new elders, but we're now in a position to initiate the process by which we elect suitable men to fill the two vacancies on session. Now, some of you will be familiar with the process, but for those unfamiliar with the process, I have outlined it in last Friday's communication, of which, as I've said, there are some printed copies in the foyer. In the election, uh, we follow what is prescribed in the Code of the Presbyterian Church of Victoria. And the first important step the Code requires is that the minister must expound in each congregation in his charge the biblical teaching on the effect uh, on the office of eldership. And that's what we're doing this morning by looking together at 1 Timothy 3. Now, this requirement to start the whole public process by looking at what God's word says is a provision to be thankful for. It says the congregation belongs to our saving God and that its health and safety is found in conforming its life and especially the selection of those to whom it entrusts oversight of its affairs to the word of God, to the owner's instructions. Just as God's word brings us life, For faith comes through hearing and calls us together, so God's word has to rule our life together. And uh, this is a requirement that acknowledges the importance of elders in the life of the congregation. Uh, Preaching on it makes us stop and not allow the election of elders to be routine, just part of the machinery of the operation of the church. We have to think about the kind of person we should elect For their service will affect us all, have a large role, as we'll see from Timothy, in preserving the identity of the congregation as God's household and the reputation of the congregation as a household worth belonging to, the place where we can hear the gospel and be encouraged to live faithful to our Lord. It's important that we all know the kind of person to whom God says we should entrust oversight. Oversight is a kind of leadership. It's not the only leadership in the congregation. We have people, women and men, who lead and serve in all sorts of capacities, in our ministries, growth groups, in the deacons. So oversight being an elder is not the only kind of leadership, but it is an important one with responsibility for the health of the whole congregation. And our society does have views on leadership, whether it's political or business or sporting leadership. In fact, books on leadership are never ending. All of us will have our views on leadership, on what makes a good leader, shaped by our experiences of leadership in society. And we can import those views and into our expectations of leadership in the church. But the church is God's household. And if we are to be God's church and not blown about by every leadership fad, or import inappropriate models of leadership from other contexts, even destructive ideas of leadership, we need to listen to God's word 
and learn from him who he says should be entrusted with the oversight of his people. And members especially should know what God says we should look for in an elder as members, and in this case only members elect elders. They are entrusted with the responsibility of ensuring that the leadership of the congregation conforms to God's standards, entrusted with the responsibility of honouring God by conforming their choices to his instruction. And that's an important responsibility and one whose exercise affects you directly, shaping the community in which your own faith will be nurtured and your children and friends will hear and experience the Christian faith. And members actually need to know what kind of person God says should be elders, for session is permitted to accept into its number only those qualified by godly character and appropriate gifts of leadership as specified in scriptural teaching. So you need to know why waste your vote. So let's turn to 1 Timothy 3 to learn first the role of the elder, the context, then the context of their service, the character and gifts required, and the goodness of God in this provision he makes for his people. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone, writes Paul, aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. 1 Timothy 3 speaks of an overseer, and the Greek word translated overseer is episkopos, the word from which English gets episcopal. And we associate episcopacy with bishops, and bishops with a very different structure of church life than ours. So are we looking at the wrong passage? Well, no, for in the New Testament, elders and overseers are referring to the same group of people. In Acts 20, Paul summons the elders uh, of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. He summons the elders of the church, and then in verse 28, he says the Holy Spirit has appointed them overseers, the word used in 1 Timothy 3. Oh, in 1 Peter 5, Peter addresses the elders. I exhort the elders amongst you. And then, verse 2, he speaks of their work as overseeing. In Titus 1.5, Paul says he's left Titus in Crete to appoint elders in every church. And then in verse 7, he speaks of the overseer when he's explaining why the elder needs the character described in verse 6. Elders and overseers are different titles or descriptors of the one group of people. Elders are overseers. Elders is a role or position in the congregation, a kind of public office, a title taken from the Old Testament and then from the synagogue who had a gerousia, that is, a council of elders. Episcopos, overseer, is more of a job description, the responsibility elders have in the life, in the life of their congregation. Sorry. A responsibility elders have in the life of their congregation. Elders together are given the task of overseeing the congregation, a responsibility for the whole, to keep an eye on things, to see that it all keeps working according to the owner's instructions and providing the encouragement, training and accountability to make that happen. Now, another job description is contained in the shepherding language used of the work of elders. In Acts 20, say, Paul, speaking to those Ephesian elders, tells them to shepherd the church, the flock, 
of God. And then in 1 Peter 5, we see Peter saying the same thing. Shepherd God's flock among you. And that's, uh, in a sense, a, a job description, to shepherd. But we're not as familiar with a shepherd's role uh, now, but it involved protecting the flock from thieves and predators like wolves and wild dogs, guiding the flock, keeping the flock moving to the right in the right direction, the direction set by the chief shepherd, nurturing the flock, feeding them so that they get enough of the right food and drink at the right time. In these descriptions of elders, overseers, shepherds, we can start to see something of the importance of the elders' work for the health of the congregation. Where they work well, God's people are well nurtured and protected and together their life conformed to God's will, which is good. But get neglectful, selfish, lazy, unfaithful shepherds and it's disastrous. God's flock are malnourished, scattered and vulnerable. And the importance of making a wise choice about elders will become even clearer as we get a snapshot of what's being entrusted to their care, the context of their service, the church of God. And we're going to think a little of what we see of the church in 1 Timothy, its relation to God, its relation to God's saving purpose and the people whom it includes to get a context for the work of elders. So after Paul's given instruction on elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3, he writes to Timothy, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, of course, these verses are the foundation of what I've already said about the church in relation to God, the church, and he's talking of the local church. It's it's actually a church, a congregation, is God's household. That's saying God's the head of the house. He's brought it into being and its identity is found in relation to him. And like any great house, it's governed by the will of its head. So God sets the standards. God distributes the responsibilities and God cares for its members. And God, we're reminded here, is the living God. He's not deaf, unaware, unresponsive. He sees, hears, knows what goes on in his house and he's not absent, unable to enforce his judgments and decisions. And so in these verses, Paul is bringing home the seriousness of how we all conduct ourselves in the church in relation to other believers, but also especially the seriousness of the work of elders. And Paul adds that the local church is a pillar and foundation of the truth. Some versions might have that as the bulwark of the truth or the protection of the truth, the mainstay, because that word that's translated foundation actually only occurs once in the New Testament. But but the sense is, is that the church brought into being by the gospel is to support and protect the truth of the gospel. The Christian faith made known in the gospel. The church is to be a place where the stability and the firmness of the truth of the gospel is maintained. Now this relation to the truth speaks again of the importance of the church for it speaks of its relation to God's purpose, a purpose that has brought the church into being. 
Paul has already, if you've been reading 1 Timothy, uh, told us in 1.15 that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, a wonderful truth. And then he's written that God wants everyone to be saved and that they're saved by coming to a knowledge of the truth, the truth of the gospel, that Christ is the one mediator whose death is a ransom, the price paid to set us free from condemnation. And Paul will go on to tell us that that actually the living God is the saviour of all people. He wants all people saved, especially of those who believe. God wants people saved and is saving through the gospel. Where is that gospel to be kept in its purity and supported in its activity in the world? It's actually in the church. The church is the pillar and foundation, that is the local congregation. You and I, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, has a central role in God's saving purpose in the world. And the church is the fruit of that saving purpose as well, made up of sinners saved by the gospel, saved through the grace of Christ who came into the world to save sinners. And that brings us to another feature of the church in which elders are called to serve. That is the people who make up the church. Because God wants all people to be saved, that is all kinds and types of people, while having in common the experience of being saved through faith in Jesus, the composition of the church as we ourselves experience is also very diverse. And that's what you see in 1 Timothy the church made up of people in every kind of stage and condition of life. Don't rebuke an older man. Younger men, as, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters with all purity. So the church is made up of men and women, old and young. And as you read on in Timothy, you'd see that the church is made up of families with intergenerational responsibilities. If a widow has children or grandchildren, they should look after her. But also it's made up of people who are on their own, the widow who is truly in need and left all alone. So families, single people. Oh, yes, it's made up of rich and poor. Instruct, instruct those who are rich in this present age. Oh, all who are under the yoke of slaves. <coughs> people who matter in society, people who don't matter at all. And yes, you'd learn it's made up of the sick. Timothy is having frequent illnesses and the grieving. There are widows. It's made up of all kinds of people. And elders have to be able to be people who can relate to all believers and who can nurture the faith of believers, whatever their stage and circumstances, in a church that matters to God, and in sustaining the gospel has a continuing and central role in God's purpose in sending Christ into the world. Now, that would be challenging enough, actually, just relating across that great diversity of human experience. But we also learn that the church in which elders serve, the church that's in a sense central to God's gospel mission, faces threats to its identity and reputation. Uh, the challenge to the church's identity comes from false teachers who would have believers trust their word, not God's, who would displace the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ, 
from the centre of the life of the congregation in favour of their own teaching. Now, I'm going to mention these briefly in a sense. I'm just illustrating the point, illustrating their presence and threat, and that these are types that we'll encounter. <coughs> and I know that will frustrate some because I'm going to put verses on the screen. Then they're going to come down. I'm sorry about that. Look at these verses. as just illustrative. You're not required to try and read all, and you can go back and find them all in the outline. Okay, with that. Okay. But, but what do we actually meet in, in 1 Corinthians? Well, 1 Corinthians 3 to 7, there are those who distort by disproportion. They may have zeal, even a Bible zeal, but they're into the minutiae and involve theories and speculations about things that you can never really know the truth about. They're myths and endless genealogies, or as I've recently encountered, who are actually the sons of God in Genesis 6. <coughs> I've read volumes on that. Right. Uh, you know, to the neglect of what really matters, which is faith in Christ and the life that flows from it. Or then in chapter 4, you get the super spiritual ascetics who take their teaching from elsewhere, deceitful spirits, their own visions and insights and who are going around forbidding what God has never forbidden. Or in chapter 6, there are people who are teaching what, well, people want to hear, who are carving out a reputation for themselves by controversy with what Paul calls, verse 4, their unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words, and they're all doing it for money, reputation and money, thinking godliness is a way of material gain. Now, we encounter all these kinds of things and they all remove Christ from the centre. And all these teachers are not ruled by the apostolic teaching and they all distort the Christian life, which Paul says comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. They threaten the identity of the church because those who follow these false teachers cease to be God's people relating to him through Christ. And the church also faces threats to its reputation and character caused by the behaviour of believers. Read 1 Timothy and you'll see a number of behaviours being addressed that represent a constant threat to the good reputation of the congregation. And again, I'll mention them briefly. So in chapter 2, you've got blokes quarrelling, angry quarrelling, quarrelling. Oh, verse 9, you've got competitive, vain ostentation in dress. And both those things, of course, make a congregation inhospitable, make people uncomfortable in being there. Oh, chapter 5, it's quite plain that Paul's addressing the possibility of believers neglecting their family and other believers going around being gossips and busybodies that does nothing for the reputation of the church. Read on. And you'll find that he has to deal with hypocrisy in leadership, making rules about what to do when elders sin, inappropriate work relationships where people presume upon their status as believers, and, of course, ever-present greed. Now, all these behaviours and others, like abusive online postings, for example, are always possible in a church where people's small wrong choices can grow into reputation-destroying habits and where wrong desires can be nurtured in private and then not confronted. And all of these behaviours damage the reputation of Jesus' people in the community. And false teaching and bad behaviour 
false teaching and bad behaviours are not just threats to the church's identity and reputation. In threatening those, they're also threatening God's saving purpose in the world. The church is to be the pillar and foundation of the truth, a community where the saving truth of the gospel of the God who wants all to be saved can be heard, where the attractiveness of living with Jesus as Lord can be seen. So sustaining the truth in congregations is not just about the health of the congregation. It's about God's mission in the world, his desire that all will be saved. So operating in this context with these threats, which are not confined to ancient Ephesus, but which we face as a congregation in various forms, what does God say? of the character and gifts of those who are called to exercise oversight, to keep the church functioning as the church of the living God, where the truth is preserved, defended, lived by and preached. Well, it's plain, isn't it, as you were listening to 1 Timothy 3, that there's a great focus on personal qualities, on character. In fact, as we'll see, the only functional gift spoken of is teaching. And we're going to think about why this is so, why this instruction has the emphasis that it does when we've looked at the character described. So it says an overseer must be, an elder must be above reproach, that is blameless, no observable known faults in his conduct. So you can't look at him and find fault in the way he relates to his wife or he drives or how he conducts his business or whether he keeps his word. He's not open to attack for his behaviour. And he's to be the husband of one wife. That is faithful to his wife. Paul's not giving instruction about how often one can be married. He's not ruling out remarried widowers from consideration, for example. But he's giving instruction about how the man has conducted himself in marriage. Faithfulness in marriage is a great demonstration of integrity. Faithfulness to commitments and a heart set to please Jesus. It's to be self-controlled, not given to extremes, clear-headed and sensible or thoughtful, and self-controlled and sensible uh, together say that the elder's not to be a slave to his appetites, not ruled by his passions and impulses, not given to disproportionate reactions. He's able to be self-controlled and so able to focus on what's the real issue is to be respectable, that is, to have integrity. Someone who does what he says, fulfills his obligation, lives a life that causes others to respect him. Hospitable, willing to spend his substance to support believers in need and able to teach. That is the one ministry skill spoken of both here and in Titus where it says the elder has to hold to the faithful messages taught so that he can both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. Now, it doesn't mean the elder has to be an orator, but it does mean that in groups or one-on-one, he has to explain Christian teaching and apply it to the lives of those who hear. And this is an essential ability, one vital to the health of the congregation, especially when you think of the false teaching that there's a threat to the identity of the congregation and when you think of the way behavioural change happens in the life of believers, it happens 
by the persuasion of God's word, the teaching, rebuke, correction and training of the scriptures applied to our hearts by God's spirit. On the elders not to be an excessive drinker, not given to drunkenness. Uh, and it's pretty obvious why it's the case, isn't it? I mean, a drunkard is someone who is unreliable and will bring shame on himself and those associated with him. A drunkard harms relationships by what's said and done when he's not in control of himself. An elder has to rule himself, not be ruled by anything else, not a bully but gentle, not someone who's threatening or abusive. You always feel uneasy, tense with a bully, and bullies can't nurture growth. You have to feel safe in an elder's presence. Be confident that if you have a question or an issue, they will listen to you, that if you get something wrong, you'll be corrected gently and encouraged, not threatened or abused. Elders have to be gentle and kind, someone who you know will not add to your hurt or grief, and not quarrelsome. Some people just love to win arguments and they delight in having quarrels so that they can win. They want to pick fights to show how much better they are, more insightful, more faithful. But we actually learn in peace and our understanding, not a demonstration of someone's intellectual superiority, has to be the elder's goal. Not greedy not a lover of money, not someone who will use you or the congregation for their own material advancement. You can never trust such a person, for they always have their interests, not yours, at the forefront of their thinking. In fact, elders need to be people who can bear material loss for the welfare of the congregation. And Paul says he has to manage his own household competently, and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? <coughs> now, this is a requirement that makes so much sense. So you think, how do you know someone has the character Paul has just described? Well, it's only by observation. And where do we see people in relationships and tested in relationships over years? It's actually in their families. It's in family relationships that people's character is developed and proved, where we can see the fruit of their relating, where we can see their relational competence. And it makes sense because relationships in families are very like relationships in the household of God. You see, it's in the family that we see thoughtful provision for the needs of dependence, the prioritisation of time for the good of those entrusted to their care, the capacity to develop in others an ability to relate well, to trust and be trusted. It's in the family that we see the ability to preserve unity, the ability to correct in love. And that's the fruit of the character Paul is looking for. Now, it doesn't say here or in Titus that the children must be believers. That's the work of God's Spirit giving new birth. But it does say they must be respectful and that under the elders' roof they can form their life to the household standards. And in a world where families are under pressure, we should be praying for our parents and their families and especially for our elders. <clears throat> Paul goes on and says he must not be a recent convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. So there has to be time 
for someone to prove themselves faithful. Appointing a recent convert could give them a dangerously inflated view of themselves and like the devil they might start to trust in themselves and their own sanctity and ability. Elders need time to know their own frailty and fallibility, their own capacity for failure and sin. An untried person can be dismissive of the failings of others and impatient with their struggles and their spiritual pride will destroy themselves and others. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. This isn't saying the world's estimates should guide our appointment, but the elder is in many contexts representing the Christian community and mixing with those outside the congregation on behalf of the congregation. Now, under what circumstances might the elder get a hearing? Well, it won't happen if there's doubt, say, over the integrity or reliability of their work if they're a tradesman or if they're known for championing some eccentricity that is abhorrent to the community, like forbidding marriage, as some of the false teachers at Ephesus were doing. And it won't happen if still prominent in the community's mind is some sin for which the person may have found forgiveness but which still stirs up resentment or where there are differences of education and culture that the beliefs of the believer will be looked down upon. The role is hard enough in a critical society without exposing the elder to continuing criticism and disdain, where that society will interpret everything they do in the worst possible light. The goal is to get a hearing for the gospel, and someone exposed to that constant criticism and rejection can start to feel that they're letting the community down and get discouraged. Or they might become fearful of the response of those outside and be tempted to compromise. Or they might react with hostility themselves and lose their love for the world and create a withdrawn, defensive and insular Christian community. So says Paul, look for tested, proven character in someone who can teach. Someone who has a proven, tested capacity for promoting the other's good in relationships. Someone who's respected not just within the congregation but within the community at large. Now why? Why doesn't Paul say, look for someone with a lot of academic learning or who's been a success in business or who has a charismatic personality or who's gifted with prophecy and miracles, say, Why this kind of person for this ministry? And here we see the goodness of God's provision. Firstly, this kind of person can promote the growth of the members of the congregation, and that's the goal of ministry, to present everyone mature in Christ. For that goal to be realised, you need a good model and you need good relationships. People need to see the Christian life lived out in relationships. And this kind of elder is, as he ought to be, a model of what it is to follow Jesus, of the character. And I hope you notice that as you're reading through. Hopefully you're thinking, well, I shouldn't be quarrelsome. I shouldn't be a drunkard. Actually, I should be kind and jet, right? This is a model of the character we should all have. And the life described, one we should all live, a life of love, sustained by self-denying self-control in the context of settled relationships because we need good relationships for growth. You see that in the family 
and church relationships are like family relationships. Bullies crush, drunkards are unreliable, the greedy exploit, and none can be trusted and none nurture others. But an elder with this character has the tested ability to practice the kind of relationships that are needed for growth, where you can rebuke without crushing, encourage without flattering, correct gently, love without indulging. And you need that testedness. For this character has to be on display 24-7 and over years, not just now and then when it suits. And secondly, this kind of elder can protect and enhance the church's reputation in the wider community. And that's important not just for the church but for the gospel. We operate in a wider context with an often suspicious and critical community watching on. And our leaders carry the reputation of the community and of Christ on their shoulders. And so, for example, in Ephesus, the false teachers were trashing the church's reputation by following their own desires and ambitions and by associating their areas with the gospel, making it easy for people to dismiss the gospel. And someone running off with the church's funds or with someone else's wife or promising and not delivering, or found to be bullying their staff, which has happened quite prominently in the last few years in big churches, or dealing with questions or complaints with anger, all damage the reputation of the church and the gospel. Someone with the character described in 1 Timothy 3, who's able to show integrity in their lives, honourable relationships, honesty in handling money, reliability in their work, thoughtfulness in their responses to criticism, kindness and gentleness towards the vulnerable. That person enhances the congregation's reputation and can win a hearing from those outside. And thirdly, we need this kind of character and giftedness because elders are entrusted with the teaching of the word in the congregation And the reception of that word is essential to the identity and life of Christian people. In fact, it's through the teaching of the gospel that we are Christ's people, isn't it? Only this way can we be who we claim to be. You see, the gospel is God's power to save. And only by believing the gospel are we included in God's saved people. And remember in Matthew 28, our Lord says, that to be his disciples, we need to be taught to do all that he has commanded. We need to know what he's taught and how to put it into practice. It's only as we are guided and by, directed by his word, we are his. So we need people who can teach it in a trustworthy way. If those we choose are unable to teach one-on-one as well as in a group, if those we choose, uh, those who are entrusted with teaching the word in a congregation uh, can be dismissed as hypocrites, if teaching can't be received because it's lost in bullying, threats or argumentativeness, well, the word, word won't be clear and it won't come with authority and it won't get traction in our lives. Christ will not rule and the congregation will wither as his people. We need the kind of person described in 1 Timothy 3. And fourthly, in preserving the truth from error, in promoting healthy relationships and growth to maturity in the congregation, in preserving the reputation of the congregation, this kind of eldership can promote the work of the gospel, the saving work of God in and through his church, through the believers who gather. 
So why this kind of eldership? They can have the ministry which is needed for the healthy growth of the congregation that preserves and promotes the reputation of the congregation and the gospel in the wider society and which sustains the central place of the word of God in the congregation's life and so sustains the church as the pillar and ground of truth and its role in the saving purpose of God who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In the coming weeks, as you reflect on your choice and this instruction, as I hope you will, be thankful that the Lord Jesus commands and provides this kind of leadership for you. He wants your well-being. He wants you nurtured. He wants his people characterised by what matters to him, love and kindness, truth and godliness. Be thankful and be prayerful. It's the Lord who gives elders. Elders are not manufactured. No amount of leadership classes or institutes will give you these kinds of people. They are his gift to his people, prepared through faithful living over years. So pray for such elders and pray with confidence because our Lord wants his people healthy and safe. And know that being wise in your choice means recognising those whom God has given and to recognise that such men and only such men are fit to exercise pastoral care amongst God's people in this way. Don't think having elders is about having your views represented or promoting your agendas. Don't overlook some because others are noisier. Don't confuse charisma for character. And so don't be misled in your choices. To set aside the scripture's instruction is folly that invites trouble. And as you think about the election, continue to be prayerful for our existing elders Theirs is a serious work, a tough gig, and a long service called for with an accounting to the Lord of all at the end. So for your own benefit and the reputation of the gospel, to make sure we are a community where Jesus rules in truth, not just in words, for the good of the world who desperately need to receive the gospel to see the goodness of following Christ Be guided this time and always and in whatever congregation you are in. Be guided in your choice by the word of the living God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray we would not be worldly in our thinking about leadership and the kind of leadership the church, your people, need. Our Father, we pray that we would be guided solely and wholly by your word. And gracious Father, we do pray that you would provide for us people whose character you have formed and tested over years, people to whom you have given understanding of your word and the ability to teach it. And gracious Father, in your mercy, please please preserve our elders In godliness and truth we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.